This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. Hello, I'm Ben Rogers, Marketing Manager at Poetry Society, and today joining me are the judges of this year's National Poetry Competition, Rachel Long, Fiona Benson and David Constantine. The National Poetry Competition is one of the most prestigious competitions for a single unpublished poem and has been running since 1978, open to all poets aged 18 or above worldwide. I'll just introduce our poets today. Fiona Benson's second book, Vertigo and Ghost, won the Roehampton Poetry Prize and the Forward Prize. Her third collection, Ephemeron, is due out from Cape in 2022. David Constantine has published a dozen volumes of poetry, most recently 2020's Belongings. He's also written two novels and five collections of short stories, the most recent of these being The Dressing Up Box. In 2020, he was awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. Rachel Long is the founder of Octavia, Poetry Collective for Women of Colour. Her debut poetry collection, My Darling from the Lions, is published by Picador and was shortlisted for the Felix Dennis Prize for Best First Collection, the Rathbones Folio Prize, the Costa Poetry Award and the Jalak Prize. Hello, Rachel, Fiona and David. Thanks very much for joining us today. I was going to start by talking about reading. And as judges, you will be doing a fair amount of reading, obviously. So I wondered if we could start by thinking about anything interesting that you've been reading recently and what your reading habits are. Do you want to start this one, Rachel? Yeah, sure. In answer more widely to your question, everything and anything... I read poetry mostly, but then I'll have spells spanning months where I will only want to read prose and I want to be really deep inside of a very long, continuous story. For me, that's really important for writing poetry too, all the different forms and all the ways that that can then affect and influence the poems that you're writing and how that can stretch the form for you. Currently, I have just finished, even though I meant to read it ages ago when it came out, but I do that a lot with books. I sort of leave them because the hype is so big. And then finally, probably like years later, come to it. But I just finished Marlon James's A Brief History of Seven Killings, which is, as probably most other people know, because I read it years ago, truly extraordinary. Perhaps reading such an epic book like that, I'm just really interested in how that might affect the work that I write in terms of different voices and length and stretch and global concerns and things like that. That's great. Is anyone reading any poetry at the moment that they found interesting? Well, I have, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it. <laughs> I've been reading Carietta's next book of poems. I'm not going to say too much about it because I don't know if she'd want me to, but I think that's one of the privileges of getting a little bit published you start getting books to blurb and I've had Carrie Etta's new book to blurb which is amazing and also Kim Moore's new book of poems really politicized poems about kind of microaggressions and being a young woman in the world and it's terrific. And David you've written a vast amount sounds like a vast amount are you also quite a voracious reader? It seems to me absolutely necessary that people who write, read. And I don't really mean that you read in a studying fashion, although you easily get into the habit of studying what you read. And it's, there's a slight sense of 
what is this doing for me always? But I don't mind that. That seems to me to be perfectly legitimate. I can write poetry on perhaps three occasions in a year. So some total of poems I write in any one year is, is by no means large, but I read a lot and I translate a lot. And by translating, I keep in touch. And I'm teaching myself the whole time. You know, I go back again and again to things that I read when I was 16 and the kind of formative things that I was, poets then that I was reading, Wilfred Owen, Lawrence and Robert Graves and, and people. And I come back and it's different. And it's the same with long novels. We have a very close friend who periodically goes back and reads Middlemarch again. You're not the same person when you read Middle March for the second time or the third time or the fourth time. That's the great thing about it. And you're not the same person when you go back to a poem by Hardy, say, that moved you deeply when you were 18. You have these touchstones along the way, which are still enormously helpful. Points of orientation. And reading is bound to be a bit like that, I think, for somebody who writes. That's very interesting about touchstones and points of orientation. I don't know if Fiona or Rachel, whether you have any books that you come back to periodically. I was thinking about the books that I return to and I'm always going back to Anne Carson and Lucille Clifton and Sharon Olds. I just keep returning to them over and over again and there's always something fresh because like David says, you're always a different person. I think, you know, what David was saying about teaching yourself, I think we're also always doing that and not necessarily by reading fictional poetry. I think I read quite a lot of information about, well, for example, I was writing about insects. I was having to research insects a lot and follow my interests. And then I've been doing a little commission for Durham and I decided to research the Durham witches. So I was looking at all the old defamation cases from like the 17th century with this amazing rich language. And it's all so powerful and enriching and these voices from different realities that are coming in so it doesn't I think like Rachel said at the beginning you read everything and anything and you just follow your interests and your instincts and as David said there's always a slight feeling of well, what am I getting from this but that's okay this is our craft and we're always learning and it's good to be open to that I think. I think it's important for people who write to understand that the essential perpetual dynamism of the acts of reading and of the act of, of writing, and then the text itself, and the texts that get recovered, you know, that have gone and then come back, and, and every now and then a new generation discovers something that we've let lapse and that we can't really do without, and if literature matters to you, and, it, and clearly it does. The reader is absolutely engaged in the act of, of writing. You've got these dots on a page which are conventional signs. That's all they are, black on white. And a reader reading brings these things to life. Very keen on the notion of reading as the necessary participation in the creative act of writing. If there were no readers, what would you do? What, what would you be? You'd be nothing. That's a very interesting point. And also, I was wondering if we might think about when we decide to write, who are we writing to? If we have an audience in mind or if we're kind of writing to ourselves when we start writing. Yeah, I was just thinking when David was talking just then about how acknowledging that reader as a creative participant in the poem 
is vital, isn't it? I think like most people, when I start off writing, I'm honouring the poem. I'm just trying to follow the poem and it's kind of natural life and it's like a little creature you're trying to embody. But I think there is a certain grace in acknowledging that there is a reader that will participate in the poem. In my own poems, I choose not to block people out, I think. And I like poems that don't block me out when I'm reading them. What do you think, Rachel? I want to ask, how do you make sure that you're not blocking your reader out doing that? Well, I always think that, you know, when you have written something and then you kind of run it past other readers to check that they're able to follow or just engage in the animal life of the poem in some way. I mean, your poem's like that. What do you what do? you do? Firstly, I love that you call the poem a creature. That's gorgeous. That's going to do a poem thing to me now. I'm not going to be able now to think about a poem without thinking of it like a creature. I absolutely agree that in the beginning, or at least for the first drafts or the early life of the creature, that it only honour itself and it only be onto itself as well. I think if, at least for me, if, if I worry about where that poem might go or who might read it down the line, I will be not focusing on just the poem it's already become outward and for me it would be dead in the water before it's even had a chance so and also this thing about other readers and I was going to say just when David was speaking as well about the dynamism and also the text being different so in a workshop when it's like collaborative reading or collective reading and how that can open and change the experience of a poem that perhaps you return to we will teach workshops, we tutor on workshops, and sometimes I'll bring a poem that I love and I've long loved, and how that poem will change for me when there's a table of other readers who will come at that poem slightly different and how many doors that poem then has for me that I never saw, even though I've, I've read and read and read that poem so many times, and I love that. There's just one thing I'd say is that you should never, when you're writing a poem, be addressing the human race or posterity. Tone of voice is absolutely critical, and I, on the whole, like to think that I'm talking in a tone of voice which is quite quiet. I used to say in one of them courses, don't shout, and I meant by that, don't bellow at the human race, there's no point. Don't bellow at your, your social group or anything like that. You're talking quietly. Quite often it's to, to a person or to people whom you love, and they, or, or it's a tone of voice which is appropriate to being taken seriously in a quiet way, without bullying, without shouting. I may as well say this now, it is exactly the opposite of the language of politics, of parliamentarians. It's 10 million miles away from any utterance by Johnson. It's as far away from an utterance by Johnson as you can get in human speech. Thinking of addressing the human face, I find enormously helpful actually and it may be a, a beloved face it may be it may be a face that you conjured up but actually that sort of proximity and intimacy absolutely doesn't limit the scope of the poem because th- I, this has been the most touching thing about it moves me to tears again and again that hearing from people whom I I don't know I you know I'll never know but who've taken the trouble to write and say it's happened to you as well I'm absolutely sure this touched me And then you think, this thing is worth it. This thing works, actually. Speaking in a voice which is, I hope, my own, to faces that I can visualise is 
is absolutely not constraining yourself within a very narrow compass. This is what Blake meant by the holiness of minute particulars. He's absolutely no time for abstractions. It's particulars. And that also means that the particularity of, of experience of your own, and then if done well, then other people attach to those particularities when they when they read. I think the speech act in it is enormously important. And, you know, I have a great admiration for people who can recite their poems without a text in front of them and can rap and all the rest of it. But I can't do that, but I try to have a tone of voice, which is, what well, you hope, kind of ordinary and persuasive in some ways. I wanted to reflect a little bit on why we write in the first place or why we specifically write poems. There's a quote from Henry Michaud that the mere ambition to write a poem is to kill it. I wanted to perhaps think about what made you sit down to write your very first poem and why do you keep writing poems now? What made you want to enter that type of writing that we call poetry? I think it's quite a natural impulse. I think we sometimes hammer it out of people, don't we? It's so close to song and humans have been singing forever. I think it's just a way of singing maybe when you don't have such a good voice. <laughs> Both my early poems that I remember came out of kind of quite traumatic things as well. One of them was just reading a book. So I read Alan Patton's Cry the Beloved Country and I remember writing a poem in response to that because... I think I was trying to process what I was reading about. And then the other one, the early one that I remember was about my granddad who had Alzheimer's. So I think there were ways of trying to do something with that information that I wasn't wasn't quite up to processing. I think it's a natural thing to write poems and I've, I've never really been able to write anything else. It's not a choice for me. I agree. I feel similarly when Ben first asked that question. I, I don't know and I'm trying, I am trying, I'm constantly trying more and more to be okay with the not knowing exactly why I do or why I have to, why I'm compelled. So you feel saying it's like a natural impulse then in the same way that I don't know why I, you know, fall in love or why we do like, you can't be very sure about why we have to do that or why we have to sleep or why we dream. I think for me, at least, it's like one of those things. Lots of other people have very articulate answers about why they write, and but I don't know, and I like the not knowing. David, you write not just poetry, so are there certain times where you're in a poetry mood or a short story mood? Is it, how does that work? Well, I've got no control either over either. I mean, they, they really do come and go, as I said earlier. It's absolutely true. I spend... I've met poets whom I admire, actually, who say, well, I write every day. I mean, they may not keep everything that they do every day, but the thing about the ambition to write kills it. There's a phrase by T.S. Eliot, I'm not very keen on Eliot, but he, some of the criticism is, and he talks about the passive attending upon the event. And it's that passivity. And attending upon means not only waiting for, but being, as it were, in the service of it. And then the event is the, this sounds all very... Um, religious and uh, far-fetched if you like but an awful lot of the time you know it or not you are passively attending upon the event particular occurrence which in my case i can't ever foretell foresee or choose actually i was interested at once when fiona mentioned her, her grandfather because although i've been writing poems for quite a while 
the first time I really knew that it was up to me this and it was deadly serious was in the last year of my grandmother's life when she became more and more close and upset by her husband's death on the Somme in July 1916 and she would come into the room with these few bits of paper that widows got with a cyclist style sheet and the place filled in you know, killed in action and she was kind of turning to me as the eldest grandson to as it would do something about this she would never ever have formulated it like that but that's the first time i really knew that i had a subject that it was up to me to somehow deal with a feeling of onus in my case because we were very close family my brother's a historian he does all sorts of things but it peculiarly on me first generation staying at school beyond 13 14 first generation going to a secondary school absolutely first generation going to a university and an awful lot in our household of that social class which was by no means poor they had a very modest opinion of their importance <laughs> They really did not think they, they mattered terribly. They just got on with what they were doing. It went home in me just like that at that point. That every single thing about you people matters. It matters deeply. It matters more than kings and queens and princes and, and all the rest of it. You matter in that class, what you've been up to, what you've suffered, what you've achieved. And in some way or other, it's up to me as the first, as it were, systematically educated person. This typical sort of fate and fortune of somebody born in 1944. There was a period when it seemed as though Britain was going to be a, a really wonderful country to live in. Everything was moving in the right direction. But I felt like Tony Harrison and I could name quite a few others who just felt like, I kind of know what I'm supposed to do. You write because in some way or other you feel it's, it is actually your responsibility. It's just one thing. Millions of people can do other things and better. I bought a copy of Wilfred Owen's poems in Manchester on my way home from school. And I got a second bus to go home at number 64. And I climbed up to the top and there was nobody there. And I opened it. Any, just like that. And suddenly I couldn't see the page for tears. I was 15. And I couldn't see the page for tears. I don't even remember which poem it was. And I just thought, that's it. Lots of people have such uh, epiphanies when you know why it's incumbent upon you to try, at least. You know. What might we say if there's somebody who's sitting down with the aim of writing a, a poem, which Michaud said that you perhaps shouldn't do almost, if someone's just facing a blank page, how should they tackle that period, I suppose, where you don't have inspiration or where you don't feel urgency? I don't know if you ever have that in your own creative process where it just doesn't feel like there is that responsibility or compulsion where do you then find the drive to create i'm not sure that michelle is saying you shouldn't write i think he's maybe talking about the fact that you have this amazing thing passing through you like david was saying about elliot's passivity waiting on the event you have this event passing through you and you're always going to mess it up a bit or isn't he talking about the fact that the poems never quite as wonderful as when you're in those initial stages of writing it, you're in the middle of the event and then when you finish with it, it's not quite what you wanted somehow, I think. Sometimes I think he might be talking about that more than that you shouldn't try. We have to try, don't we? To honour these events that pass through us 
I think as far as inspiration goes, like I don't know if you sit down at a blank page and think, right, I'm going to write a poem to enter into the National Poetry Competition. I'm not, I don't think that's how it works. I think you have a practice and maybe you come up with a poem that you love and then you, by chance, you might submit it. Yeah. I agree. I think that if one wants to sit down and be like, right, right, what this is going to be, I just know that for me that wouldn't be a very a very successful poem at all because it would outwardly be thinking about the audience before the poem is written, right? Kind of like what we've talked about. Or again, like I'm making peace more and more with having periods where I don't write for a very long time. And it's always so beautiful to hear from other writers to be like, oh, phew, it is okay not to go about this like a military operation that you have to write every day, otherwise you're not a real writer and and all of that. So I, yeah, I've made peace with just leaving the page until the event happens in those terms. There are major, major poets like Rilke just stopped for years and he said, war has made me dumb. That's the first world war. The war has made me dumb. I've had periods nowhere near that long when I'm just not doing it. And it worried me, but there was nothing I could do about it. I knew perfectly well that if I sat down and in any way tried to induce it, I was not just wasting my time, but doing something improper, actually. You can suggest things and you can suggest how to go about it. Obviously you can, but in the end, it's the onus is on the particular person who wishes to write, to sort out the conditions in which that might be possible and to be as patient as as possible. If this absence continues much longer, I don't rightly know how I'll be able to bear it. That's there, but I sort of, you know, the things you can do in the meantime. We're mentioning, I think, the idea that certain inspirations and preoccupations can come to you then that then leads to the writing. I wondered if we could just sort of touch on any things you've been interested in that have then wound up creating large quantities of poems. Fiona, you mentioned insects. Could you just say a little bit about the writing of those poems? Because that generated a whole lot of material. At what point did you know that would happen or did it just emerge organically? A bit of both, actually. I mean, I think I'm in a slightly different position to Rachel and David because... I have children, so it's really hard to find time to write. So I do need to sit down every day or I get ill. I do need to sit down and write or I just don't operate. So I do like to follow my nose slightly on things and follow my interests. So the inset poems, that came from a commission, actually. We were asked to design a commission. We went to interview various insect experts so that we could learn and I'm using we because it ended up as an audio thing so I did it with Maya Bosworth and Eliza Lomas who are both radio producers so we interviewed lots of insect experts I know I'm interested in the natural world and that that lights things up in me so it was just kind of about trusting instincts and going and learning and learning and learning and researching and just seeing what came out of that so just kind of trusting my own interests really it's not about forcing anything it's just about following your heart a little bit I think you know it's the same when I've had to research myths or and witches just kind of following my interests and my intrigues and then not putting too much pressure on the product but just waiting to see what happens 
I think it's also really important to say that we do all have really different processes for people listening. If they do some women's school, like I just wait all the time. Other people might be really driven and need to make something happen on the page and every day. And, and that is their process. And that is different to mine. I know that I need to give myself lots of space and to float above and come in it sort of sideways before I write a poem but each person's process is different and I, I think that's another really beautiful thing about this thing that we do that there's so many different ways of approaching the poem and putting it down on a page also just with inspiration because I know I do get asked that question a lot like especially with writers who are just starting out as well because it's can be hard to know like how to generate this thing and so I suppose it can sort of amalgamate it into the question on inspirational influence dreams for me are really big and really did propel like the whole middle section of of my book you know like the things that can happen in dreams the images you can get the metaphors that happen in a dream the logic of a dream and just when I finally realized how valuable that could be for a poem or for poems it was just a real revelation to me. Relationships, conversations, something someone says sometimes in the middle of a pub or something and how that doesn't leave your head and, and you don't sometimes even know why. That thing of just sort of haunting and then maybe years later that turns up in and for a poem. I'm thinking of your gorgeous Nigerian hoovering the ceiling. Was that a dream image? Uh, half, half. Yeah, a lot of that is from dream. How I wouldn't have been able to process why that particular relationship didn't work, but my dream could, that it won't work out because he's a man who hoovers ceilings. That's why we're not compatible. But consciously, I would never come to that. And I still don't know what that means. And I'm... I'm glad. Superstitions as well, I should say, as well. I grew up in a very, well, my mother made that house a very superstitious house. And, and I find superstition, religion, belief systems really very interesting, not to follow, but to explore. Going back to what Dave said about the passive, to sort of watch and watch the effects that it perhaps has on people. I'm not entirely sure, but I know that for me to be able to process and record, I couldn't be in the eye of it. I have to be on the periphery of it. I have to sort of be a kid in the corner watching the thing happen. I thought it was interesting you were talking about the dream and saying that it wasn't true in the sense that it didn't all happen in the dream. You'd shifted some of it to fit the spirit of where the narrative that you wanted to relay was. And I thought this idea of truth is very interesting because often when people, I think, are writing poems, they think that they've then got to honour the integrity of what happened. And they might say, I need to put that detail in because it was what occurred in real life. So I wanted for us to think about what is the kind of important ingredient of truth? What do we mean by poetic truth, perhaps, if that doesn't sound too elevated? It's partly that we live now in an age of quite extraordinary mendacity. We cease to expect people to tell the truth in public life, people who are governing our lives, actually. They lie, they prevaricate. It's the whole kind of flummoxing of the thing. 
the effort to tell the truth in a poem, you're quite right, Ben, is not narrative factual. It's absolutely neither here nor there whether it really happened, because what you're making here is art. And there's a truthfulness in the art form, whatever the art form is. Kafka was, is still one of my favourite authors, and he started writing novels as a great fan of Dickens. He started off almost in the way of of a realist, a proper realist, examination of social circumstances. And straight after that, he shifts into these things which we know him better for, where you can't judge the truth of his narrative by saying things like, the Statue of Liberty, in actual fact, holds a torch, not a sword. You've put a sword. That's just wrong. Because something is going on in his fiction. And sentence by sentence, he's cleaving to the fiction the truth of that fiction. In a sense, the order he gets, the more necessary his own integrity is, because effectively nobody is saying, that's just not right. Those novels work, because lots and lots of people understand the truth in them about totalitarian regimes and all this stuff. And the poem is that in a compressed form, actually, you begin to understand the truth of it, line by line, and you can feel yourself going wrong sometimes write something which may not be on the way to the truth but actually in the way of the truth if you're a walker you know you can't afford to deviate very much from the direction in which you begin to walk because if you just follow this compass line rather than that there's a minute difference at the outset by the time you've gone two miles you are a long way from where you wish to be and the poem's a bit like that or you get clutter in the way and you think, well, this is good, lots of substance to this, lots of abundance, and it's all clutter, it's all in the way. And somehow you've got to keep on going back and back and back until you see again what the actual truth. Now, that's a very difficult truth to explain to people who are not in it, but it's either there or it isn't. And you can tell a true poem by the kind of ring of it, by the, you know, when you read it yourself, it's, this is the truth. And it's not truth in the way that Johnson is incapable of truth. It's not that sort of truth or lies. It's the truth of an undertaking which you've signed up to. It's the truth of your responsibility to get it exactly right. Another thing I wanted to say earlier about, it was something that Robert Graves used to insist on. He said, the language of poetry is rigorous. You can't afford any feeling at all that you can get away with things, be woolly. It's, it's absolutely, in its own way, as rigorous as the strictest science. It's a thinking, feeling thing all the way through. And there's a rigour in feeling as well as there is in... I'm explaining it rather badly, but I mean, I, I know when I've written a false poem, something's got lost, something I've not faced up to. It may be like your dreams, you see, Rachel, that, that feeling that there's something in there which I haven't quite grasped, and you just have to pursue it further, or in the end, back off and say, for now, it's actually beyond me, I can't do it. This uh, thing of truth, I often think of a Caroline Bird quote, she once was on stage before reading a poem, and she said, this poem is entirely true, but it contains no facts. And I think about that a lot, that truth is different from fact. I borrow so much from real life. I suspect that's what everyone does, because otherwise, what would we know? We wouldn't know anything if we didn't. This is the 
physical world or whatever like that's all that we kind of have to build upon I do think certain poets get you know the whole thing of like women we call confessional more or there's kind of an expectation still that persists that women will be more honest in the work or that what they're writing will be true in the sense that it won't be universal so there's there's all that that kind of gets in the way so sometimes I sort of shut down the yes my work is definitely based and has its foundations on real life and I borrow lots from real life but that's also not to say that it can't also wildly depart from that as well and that that's also part of the work that we can be wild and the Statue of Liberty can have a sword instead or she could actually be a tiger actually if that feels true to that particular feeling or for that particular poem. And I also love all of the possibilities of that, that we can build any way that we like on top of the foundation, maybe the, the factual foundation. I'm so sick of there being a prejudice against poets that are seen as confessional. You know, you're talking about Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and Sharon Old. Those are amazing poets. <laughs> I'm sick of the derogatory take on the term confessional like okay it's got these implications of confession box and religiosity that we don't necessarily want but I don't think it's a bad gang to belong to and I was also thinking about Sharon Olds talking about not caring how you look in a poem which I always come back to you've got to be true to the poem you can't try and make yourself look good in a poem which I think is important if you're using real life experience but also that the poem is I said creature earlier I do think it's its own creature and it has its own respiratory system and heartbeat and the rest of it you have to be true to that and try not to get in the way of it or not get in the way of what it wants to be and for me that's about being truthful and I do absolutely agree with David that it's so opposite to what we see in the political realm right now maybe more necessary because of that that we don't we're not lying and we're not trying to make ourselves look good. Trying to tell the truth in a poem is now intrinsically a political act. It just is. It's an act of resistance. That's why the arts matter. The whole web of them is an ecosystem which we can't afford to lose any bit of. The web has got continually to be put together again because it is really one of our main, perhaps these at times, chief resource of resistance of not being bullied into little units that they can manipulate better. I mean, if, if the poem does one thing, it is it insists on the absolute intrinsic specialness of every single human being. That's the great beauty of writing a poem out of your own experience. And then other people are quite rightly understanding their experience, which is similar but not the same. And that's this extraordinary feeling then of, of humanity, of a humane undertaking with people in it who are all different from you, absolutely all different. And yet there's this feeling of each person putting in her or his own life to date. And that's resistance. Yeah, I felt that earlier when you said about how your family's lives mattered and that you had to speak them. It made me think of Mark Doty saying, we are of interest to each other, are we not? It still needs insisting upon that it's a common humanity that we're interested in, interested in defending and um, adding to. So I 
thought that perhaps we should just move on to a final question about endings. Like, how do we know when we've reached the final line in a poem? And also, in an ending, as a writer or as a reader, do we look for a, an ending which has a nice turn or reveal? Or is it something that, as a writer that you prefer to steer away from more showy endings? But also just thinking about when your time with the poem is at an end, how do you know when you've done the last draft? When are you going to let it go? I think Andrew McMillan's been doing some really interesting thinking about this. I know that when he's been teaching, he's been talking about staying in the poem. So you might have an easy ending, but what happens when you push past that? I think that's quite an interesting idea. Sometimes I struggle with endings. I think they can be difficult to pull off. My own instincts early on were to go with a big cymbal crash at the end, you know, boom, it's finished. Sometimes that's not what a poem needs at all. But I think every poem finds its own ending, doesn't it? And also knowing when it's finished, I think sometimes I'm mistaken and I think poems are finished and then my editor, Robin Robertson, looks at them and, yeah, they're not finished yet. <laughs> little faulty lines or... So maybe when you can't edit it anymore, maybe that's when it's finished. I don't know. What do you think, Rachel? It chimes with something that, again, Caroline Bird says in her workshops. She said something like, getting disqualified from your own poem and going over the finish line. So if whatever you think is the finish line, you just keep running and keep running and keep running and keep running. And then until you're like, I did not even know that I could end up here, like running through the car park, then the forest and then something else until you're in a in another entire country, if not a universe, seeing then what that does to the entirety of the poem, like what you maybe thought was the ending was nowhere near the ending. Particularly it's obvious on the poem, it proceeds chronologically when it comes to a uh a full stop or however you choose to, to end it. But that ending is not an ending. Closure is a very big notion. Everybody wants closure. The nation wants closure, and understandably in many cases. But there's no such thing as closure in, in human life. You may reach a state, but it morphs into another state, on, 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 for so long as you're alive. And then even when you're dead, you, as a dead person in somebody's memory, continue on and on and on like that and lots of very good poets like Lawrence have had that feeling of life proceeding that life always exceeds art and you'd better try to write or make music or paint or play in a way that gives life its due as something endlessly proceeding as it finishes literally really it's opening <laughs> the hands are opening and the characters are They've arrived at somewhere, but they're absolutely not going to stay there. Your life, if it's being lived fully, is not going to stay there. And there's a nice antithesis between form, which we want in some form or another. No poem can be without form. But what you don't want is the feeling that, okay, we've got there and I've tied it up. You haven't. It's not even a wish one should entertain. I've tried to remember the poem is a question and not an answer. I find that very helpful. Am I making a neatness that life doesn't have that kind of that neatness or closure and so why am I trying to do this at the end of the poem honoring the question of the poem is the best way because you cannot possibly answer it anyway and that takes us back to the readers the thing gets written 600 years ago a thousand years ago more than a thousand years ago and here's a reader now 
and the thing is open and it on it goes and on it goes and in every single audience you've ever read to any readership you can imagine it is moving 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 out from this fixed thing it's black and white on a page but it's not in the least bit fixed it's it's their opening and the question loss and answer is precisely precisely right yeah. the idea of an ending that doesn't end is really interesting i think and an interesting note to end on thanks very much it's been a pleasure to talk to you all anyone can enter the national poetry competition between now and the 31st of october it's open to all poets worldwide aged 18 or over to any unpublished poems which are 40 lines or less rachel fiona and david uh, very much looking forward to reading your work. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.